In fact, they effectively confessed to all their crimes in these legal documents, arguing that they're allowed to do them. Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. My guest today is Adam Kotzko. Adam teaches in the Scheimer Great Books School at North Central College in Illinois. His work focuses on political theology, continental philosophy, and the history of Christian thought. He's the author of many books, including Neoliberalism's Demons, on the political theology of late capital, and, most recently, Agamben's philosophical trajectory. Adam, welcome to The Filter. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Our main topic is the work of Giorgio Agamben, and in particular, the idea of the state of exception, which in my view is of utmost relevance in the present moment. I like to mix things up on the filter from time to time, so we're going to structure this episode differently from most. But before we get to that, could you tell the listeners who is Agamben and what is your relationship to his writings? Uh, Giorgio Agamben is an Italian philosopher currently living whose work ranges across topics related to aesthetics and poetry, politics, religion, basically you name it. He has a, a work of incredible breadth, and especially his political thought and his work uh, called Homo Soccer established him as a, a major international figure in philosophy. I have translated a lot of his works. I have contributed to a co-authored essay collection on his work. I've organized an edited volume on his philosophical influences. And I finally wrote my own full book, giving my account of his development as a thinker. So I suppose I might count as a scholar of his work. So obviously you find him to be a fascinating person. I find his work very interesting as well, and as mentioned previously, very relevant in this moment. But he's also an academic, and he writes in a way that has to be deciphered, uh, to be understood. So what I'd like to do, and I have no idea how well this will work, is give you a quote from Agamben and then give you a chance to explain what it means or use it as a starting point for your own thoughts on the topic. Let's uh, begin with this one. Biology has become a political issue. Biology has become a political issue. I think this must be from Homo Soccer. And he's referring here to the theories of Michel Foucault, who coined the term biopolitics. Foucault distinguishes biopolitics, which he thinks is the more distinctive, like modern form of politics, from pre modern traditional politics. He says that pre-modern politics was focused on the sovereign ruler and his ability to basically let live and make die, that the salient aspect of a king is that he can kill you, but otherwise he mostly leaves you alone, I suppose. And biopolitics reverses that. The, The government makes you live and lets you die. In a benevolent sense, this refers to like public health regulations or provision of health care, that, that type of thing. But on a more sinister level, it relates to the kind of work that we see done on different populations, the 
criminalization, for instance, of certain populations, the attempt to control their reproduction or limit it. And Agamben's contribution to this debate, he wants to say, on the one hand, the sovereign structure never really went away, that Foucault kind of has this periodization where we move from one to the other, and Agamben thinks that's artificial. And the reason for this is he thinks that the biopolitical approach has always been a part of politics, at least in Western societies, that politics has always been about like producing certain forms of life and leaving others to die, and that the fundamental thing that a sovereign does is to produce a certain type of like outcast or denigrated or abject life that he calls bare life. And it's because the sovereign is able to shunt people into this category of bare life, this is the foundational gesture of politics, and this is what makes life and the different forms that life can take into the central issue of politics throughout Western history, not just in modernity. The next quote I have maybe just picks up right on that, but I'll let you to respond to that one as well. Agamben says, it is the sovereign who, insofar as he decides on the state of exception, has the power to decide which life may be killed without commission of homicide. This is a quote that refers to the figure that gives its name to his most famous book. I've mentioned it a couple times, Homo Soccer. In Roman law, to be declared um, soccer or sacred meant that you were placed outside of the protections of the law. If somebody came across you and killed you, it would not be considered a murder. And at the same time, though, you can't be sacrificed, which Agamben expands to say that you can't be part of any legal punishment or execution, for instance. That the killing of the homo sacer is just a purely factual thing that supposedly has nothing to do with the law. You're just outside the law. All bets are off. And what Agamben says is that this act of excluding somebody from the protections of the law actually brings about the most intense relationship to law that you can possibly have. That your entire life is defined by this like lack of protection by the law. This exposes the fact that the law is ultimately about threatening and about excluding and about punishing. So that the very act of being excluded from the law is actually the exposure to like the greatest possible violence. And so this, in a way, is like the ultimate way that the law kind of acts on people. And so he says that the sovereign, like the person who is in a position to say, you are in this status of homo soccer, you're in this excluded status, you're outside the protection of the law, that's the ultimate sovereignty. And that's the ultimate claim of control and the right to exercise violence over somebody. That that's ultimately what sovereignty has always meant. And I don't know if you're going to bring up more contemporary connections in later quotations. I don't want to preempt you. But the reason that Agamben's work became so famous in the early 2000s was that it seemed to dovetail exactly with what was going on in the Bush administration and things like Guantanamo Bay and the fact that they could say, this person, we've decided he belongs to this category called enemy combatant, a made-up category that was just like created on the spot. And what that functionally meant was that that person 
was outside the bounds of law, that they have no rights, that they have no recourse, that they have no right to a day in court, for instance, that they are just simply exposed to the violence of the law. And that took the form under Bush of torture, specifically um, an extra legal form of punishment that because they were in this category, they were subject to. Do you know why it is that that same word, sacred, sacred, the root there, is used both in this instance to mean, I guess, highly touchable in the sense that one can do anything to them, and then also untouchable in the sense that they are on a plane above us? Do you know how that came to be? Yeah, I think the shared concept behind both of those is that they're separated from everyday usage, that if you declare something sacred, you're saying this does not belong in the realm of everyday experience. This is in its own separate space. For instance, in the Catholic Mass, the the wafer of bread that may look like just an ordinary cracker, when it is made sacred through the act of the Mass, they say you can only use it in this liturgical context now. You It would be sacrilege to treat it as though it's a normal piece of bread outside of this setting. Um, and in fact, it can't even be taken outside of that. That they, If they have leftovers, they put them in a little box off to the side to use next time because they've already been consecrated. So that to bring this bread back into the sphere of everyday life would be a violation of it. And there are ways that like holy people kind of remove themselves from everyday life. But this, by imposing it on somebody involuntarily, it says, we're removing you from the protections and the benefits of everyday life, too. They're being exiled, in effect. Yeah, you're being exiled. And so um, it's the same fundamental thing, is that the profane sphere of how we live our daily lives and how we get our needs met and how we are protected from violence, all of that stuff no longer applies to you. And it can be thought of as like something positive and better and transcendent of that sphere, or in the case of the homo soccer, it's something that's lower down and denigrated compared to that sphere. Very interesting. The next quote I have, it's a bit longer, but it gives listeners a feel for uh, how Agamben writes. It's from the State of Exception book. He writes, If exceptional measures are the result of periods of political crisis and as such, must be understood on political and not juridico-constitutional grounds, then they find themselves in the paradoxical position of being heretical measures that cannot be understood in legal terms, and the state of exception appears as the legal form of what cannot have legal form. Are you able to untangle that for us? Yes. Agamben loves paradoxical statements. He loves to uh, tell us that something that seems to be outside is actually on the inside, or that something that's impossible is actually necessary. And the state of exception structure is, is his biggest example of this. So I think the example of the Bush administration helps, because on the one hand, I characterized you know, the torture and everything that goes on in Guantanamo Bay as extra-legal, And the very fact that Guantanamo Bay is not on U.S. soil and is in this weird limbo state where it's not kind of on Cuban soil either, technically, that this is what opens up the space for them to do these extra-legal, violent things that they supposedly claim need to be done to protect our safety, even though they're illegal. But on the other hand, 
they spent a lot of effort showing that they are legally entitled to take these extra-legal actions due to the inherent powers of the presidency. In fact, they effectively confessed to all their crimes in these legal documents, arguing that they're allowed to do them. And I think that captures the paradox neatly because the entitlement to take these extra-legal acts is in one way legal, at least they were arguing it was legal, they made their argument based on the Constitution and whatever, but it's also saying that the law opens out onto this sphere of extra-legal action. And the reason that we're allowed to do this is because, in their argument, it's simply necessary. It's just a fact, for instance, that we can only get the information we need by torturing these people and and that's the only way we can protect our safety, that regular laws are not adequate to do this, but the law somehow empowers us to break the law. And these are the points where Agamben sees the Western political system kind of eating its own tail. His argument in State of Exception is basically that, to use terms that he wouldn't use necessarily, that the law as such is a totalitarian structure that wants to make a claim over all of life at least in Western systems, everything is legislatable. Everything is subject to legal regulation or or punishment. And that modern legal thinkers can't bear the thought that there's something outside the law, there's something that wouldn't be affected by the law. And so what they do is they come up with this idea that even the sphere outside the law is somehow regulated by the law because the law gives us permission to go into it. And this is where I think he sees the law as like overreaching and uh, trying to claim something that by definition it can't claim. And I think he finds those moments of overreach or paradox or contradiction where the distinctions of the system start to break down and become contradictory, that those are the moments that we need to really watch for because those, even though they appear to be the moments when the system is like at its strongest and at its most powerful and at its most you know flexible in terms of everything that it can do, that those are actually the moments when the system is weakest and most vulnerable to critique. You mentioned the words in there, necessity and fact. It seems to me that those have particular importance or emphasis in the work of Agamben. Am I picking up on that correctly? In his political thought, definitely, because that's always the rationale that's used for the state of exception. We just have to do this. And I think even our everyday experiences of sovereignty, like in our encounters with the police, if the police you know, officer winds up killing somebody, it always retrospectively is portrayed as though it was just a sheer necessity. The police officer has no moral agency or choice in this matter. It's all, all agency is kind of put on to the person who's been killed that the police officer just reacted. You know how that, that rhetoric goes. And I think that gives an, an example of how this rhetoric is kind of used and abused to justify actions that are violent and extra-legal, but to kind of put them back on this side of legal permissibility. The next quote I have comes from an interview a Gompen says, The essential task of a theory of the state of exception is not simply to clarify whether it has a juridical nature or not, but to define the meaning, place, and modes of its relation to the law. 
Yeah, this is where he kind of shows what his overall argument is in State of Exception and what his goal is. State of Exception is a really interesting book because, in a way, it appears very accessible for the most part, especially there's sections where it talks about the history of the use of States of Exception in like Western countries, and it brings it up to the Bush era, and it all seems like very relevant and immediately accessible compared to much of his work. But the organization is really weird, and it jumps back and forth in time a ton. And by the end of the book, you're like, where are we? And so I think somebody who's reading it from like that Bush-era perspective, they want Agamben to be saying, people are abusing the state of exception, we're doing it too much, we need to go back to the regular law. And he's saying, no, this shows us something about how the law always is and always functions that these seeming extremes are actually very revelatory of how the law relates to what is outside of the law and how it tries to claim everything, how it tries to claim power over everything. And even when it cannot, it still like is coming up with this rationale for how it secretly does have control over it. And so I think what he's after in the book is not the state of exception as such or defining it or like regulating its use. I'm sure he would like it to be used less but that's not the point. He's saying all the, the circular reasoning and contradictions that people get caught in when they talk about the state of exception, that shows that there really is a reality outside the law that the law constantly tries and fails to grasp. And I think he wants us to find a way to occupy that space and find us a way to take up a different stance towards the law where it's not constantly trying to eat everything, but that we can, like in State of Exception, at a what I think should be the conclusion, but then there are like two chapters after that. He says that in the, the Messianic age, after the revolution, after everything is resolved, we will play with the law or simply study it, not enforce it, which I find to be a beautiful image. Actually, I'll just jump right to that quote. It was one of the ones I had here. This is from State of Exception. He says, One day humanity will play with the law just as children play with disused objects, not in order to restore them to their canonical use, but to free them from it for good. What is he talking about there? Yeah, the idea of treating the, the law as a toy or as just a game, that in a certain way you're misusing it, but this isn't an attempt at reform. When a kid is playing with a cardboard box or something, he's not trying to say, this is the truth of cardboard boxes, or like, we should reform all kinds. Well, maybe he is saying that. I might be on the wrong track here. But that the way a child can see a new use in what we view as a mundane item, the cardboard box that the toy comes in, for instance, he says, we need to have that same creativity for how we relate to the structures of law in this case. But I think he says that he ultimately wants us to think that way about our entire cultural heritage, that in a way, the Western structures of thought, Western cultural inheritance, even the Western way of speaking, he thinks is all caught up in this very destructive machine that is basically eating humanity alive. And that the question isn't to like get back to its true intent or something, but to be like that child with the cardboard box and say like, what can we do with all this stuff that would be different, that would be life-affirming, that would be truly beneficial? So more like 
building blocks, treating the law like a set of building blocks that can be reconfigured. Is that it? Yeah, definitely. And I think Agamben doesn't make this connection, but I think that the Jewish tradition provides an interesting model of this, that the rabbinic commentaries on the law, they're often playful. They often take the law in like a different direction than it was intended. You know, like a lot of the Jewish laws presuppose that they're like living in Israel and they have a temple and all of this stuff, and all of that has historically not applied. And so they're finding a new use for the law, a new use for those stories outside of the original context that they were developed for. And in particular, the Jewish law does not have a death penalty. Even though the death penalty is called for in the Torah and the literal text, in the rabbinic tradition, they never do that. So in a way, they're using the law to regulate their life in a certain sense, but not in the way that it was originally envisioned. I'm sure that an actual Jewish rabbi would be mad at me for saying this, and they would say, no, that really is how it was originally intended. But let's be real. That was not how it was originally intended, and I'm glad that they're using it in this new way. And I wish that other cultural traditions would have a similar creativity. And for instance, if the U.S. could like find a new use for the Constitution other than like treating it as a death trap that we all just have to go along with. There's a term, I think it's pill-pull in Jewish thought, rabbinical thought, which is, if I'm describing it right, to take a stance that you want to achieve or an argument that you want to make and then basically just to go through the texts and try to, you know, buttress it, to start with your conclusion and then to work backwards and uh, extrapolate and find, discover in the texts the, uh, the justification for that and to then to hold very strongly. It has, I think, somewhat of a negative connotation to latch on to that and decide that that's what you want to show and then you're going to do that no matter what the original text says just because you can always find something to justify your argument if you look hard enough. You know, we normally view a legal code like we want it to be very cut and dried, right? We want the rules to be clear so everybody knows exactly what's going on. And the Jewish approach is to treat a legal code as a basis for endless argumentation. And so even trying to, to marshal all the evidence for a preordained conclusion, that shows different ways in which the text could be taken and enhances the debate in the long run, even if it seems kind of uh, questionable to approach it in that way. The next quote, I've actually got two that I've put together from an interview, but they were very close together in time. Gombin says, nowadays government aims not to maintain order, but to manage disorder. The government paradigms that today regulate our countries and our societies, the exception, the disorder, crises, security, we should stop thinking they're exceptional circumstances. They are, in fact, the machine's inner core. The state of exception has become the rule. I'm reminded of the quote from Rahm Emanuel when the financial crisis hit, where he says, never let a good crisis go to waste. I think Agamben sees the modern kind of global system of governance as one that is not only illegitimate, but has given up anything approaching legitimacy. It's not even trying anymore. And instead, it rules based on this fear or threat of the disorder or chaos or crisis that's coming you know, after me comes the flood, that type of thing. 
The reason this is bad, aside from the fact that it produces destructive results, in fact, is that in principle, it does not allow any space for for deliberation or for any flexible response on our part or any type of collective project, that it just is ultimately a lockdown of all possibilities, that the, the state monopolizes all potentialities because it says this is the only way it can be because otherwise it would be even worse. So the realm of actuality is fixed and the realm of potentiality is totally fixed too. They have control of both the answers and the questions, but they can't justify themselves positively. They can't say this is good and this is what you bought into. It has to always refer to this negative possibility of crisis and um, an exception. So there's almost a symbiotic relationship between the chaos and the government's powers. Right, exactly. And wasn't it insane after 9-11 when George W. Bush presided over the biggest single attack on like the continental United States since the War of 1812 that the answer was to give this guy more power and more authority? Yeah, the intelligence agencies have failed us. Let's give them lots more power. Exactly. That type of double-down gesture just seems to be what happened. You know, like, the banks have failed us. We need to make the banks great again. You could go on and on. Uh, Health insurance companies have failed us. We need to make the health insurance companies great again. You can see where I'm going with this great again thing. For sure. Here's, Here's another one, perhaps, related to what we were just talking about. In the eyes of authority, and maybe rightly so, nothing looks more like a terrorist than the ordinary man. Yeah, this is one of the weird things. This is like in the Tiananmen essay, right? Or something like that. That the government can only see terrorism and threat because it is so based on the state of exception. It cannot see what normal life is or even could be. Everybody is only monitored as a potential threat. So the very fact that you seem to be going about your daily life in normal and not have any violent intent that in itself is suspicious, that there's no limit to what they will use to justify, you know, surveilling or detaining or interfering with your life. At the end of the day, if they decide it's necessary to define you as a terrorist, you are a terrorist. There's a one more quote I want to use here. I'm going to give my own extended thoughts on this because it reflects something that's been very much on my mind since March. Then I'll give you the last word on how you see our present moment. Here's the quote. For fear of getting sick, Italians are ready to sacrifice practically everything. Their normal living conditions, their societal relations, their jobs, right down to their friendships, their loves, their religious and political convictions. Uh, Agamben is, as should be obvious there, talking about our present moment in the pandemic. For me, this quote captures the heart of what makes me sad about this moment, uh, the key words in that quote being fear and sacrifice. Government is the institution we grant a monopoly on violence. Since the Enlightenment, this monopoly has been justified on the basis of its benefits to the people at large. Specifically, it exists to protect them from predators, both foreign and domestic. In what used to be called liberal democracies, the government is a small fraction of the population. 
the men with uniforms and guns are vastly outnumbered by the people at large, people who in my home country are themselves explicitly granted the right to have guns too. This dynamic puts a break on government's natural tendency to expand its drive for ever more power. The tip of the pyramid is always in fear of the much larger base that sustains its power and could at any moment overwhelm it. Uh, the drive for power is also held in check with law in the form of constitutions, but these are, in the end, just pieces of paper, rules interpreted by the same government that seeks to expand its power. Podcaster Dave Smith is fond of saying that the U.S. began as the smallest government in history and ended up as the largest. In the U.S., much of the expansion was justified by the Interstate Commerce Clause, but everywhere we see a constitutionally limited state, we see governments looking for exceptions that supersede these limitations. War is the most common excuse for a state of exception, and war is always sold on the basis of fear. War is fear of the enemy without, and it can be sustained for so long as a nation has a credible foreign enemy. All stable totalitarian governments depend on fear of the enemy within. This allows them to exist in a permanent state of exception and to co-opt the population through relentless propaganda into acting as surrogates for the establishment instead of a check on their power. In the final form, taken by every lasting communist experiment, individuals are subsumed into the role of government. Everyone is placed in the role of KGB spy on their neighbors, and even children are recruited to denounce their parents should they be suspected of wrongthink. Everyone fears everyone else. Fear within is the ultimate weapon of the state. To get people to give up those things that Agamben mentions, normal living conditions, societal relations, jobs, religious gatherings, takes two things. The first, which Agamben calls out, is fear. And from the very beginning of the current pandemic, the fear pump has been working overtime. And that fear has unlocked nearly unlimited government powers to lock down their populations. The second factor contributing to our compliance with demands for sacrifice, a factor that Agamben doesn't mention in that quote, is that our conception of the role of government has changed. In my view, we now see things through a tribal and even matriarchal lens. That's the era we live in. And from this lens, acceptance of extreme measures comes in part from simple partisan dynamics. In most countries, we now have a team lockdown and a team back to work. And those teams hate each other. Uh, the rift is most obvious in the U.S., but... It's dividing other countries as well. And if you're team lockdown and if you control all of the institutions of cultural and academic power, which team lockdown does in the U.S., then you have both the incentive and power to disassociate lockdown measures from the obvious tyranny that they represent. And anyone who dares point out this link, as Agamben recently did, becomes an instant pariah, as Agamben did. Working hand-in-hand hand with this tribalism is a change in our view in government. It's no longer to ensure liberty. It's to keep us safe and comfortable. So most people associate the word tyranny with extreme deprivation of comfort. We think that tyranny must necessarily manifest itself in government brutality, shooting protesters, torturing 
dissidents, Guantanamo, as you mentioned. But it doesn't have to involve a high degree of brutality, at least not at first. In the modern era, it begins with surveillance and control. It begins with the idea that the state can decide who is essential and who isn't. Non-essential workers aren't rounded up and put in concentration camps. They're given welfare, universal basic income, and told not to leave their homes except to engage in essential commerce. Today's tyranny begins with measures that on their face look like caretaking, not brutality. But they fundamentally change the relationship between the state and subject from one of sovereign individual with a right to liberty to one of maternalistic dependence. In this view, we don't have the rule of law. We have an unconstrained matriarchy which expresses itself in the form of mob rule, mass hysteria, and a hyperactive drive to keep people safe at any cost, including the sacrifice of those core human activities Agamben mentions. My interpretation of that quote is that all around us, people are reducing themselves to bare life in the hopes that this will allow policymakers to keep them alive until governments decide they no longer need all that power and everything can go back to normal. Yeah, this is an area where I feel like Agamben has gone off the rails, and I think he he makes good points in those articles, but also engages in some shoddy thinking that I think is is not typical of him. For instance, in the early essays, he claimed that basically COVID was just the flu and it wasn't a big deal. When it became clear that that wasn't the case, he turned around and said, well, I was just quoting government statistics of the time. That's not important. I just, I don't think that he's uh, conducted himself well or rigorously And I think this points to a weakness in his thought in general. Your mention of the totalitarian societies is very apropos of Agamben's political thought. The one main point of the book that I just wrote on his thought is that Agamben is definitely resolutely anti-communist. Like he just cannot bear any thought of that there's anything good or positive coming out of those socialist experiments. And there's a lot of justification for thinking that, obviously. And I say that that's part of the reason why his early work is not overtly political, because he is a man of the left at the end of the day. But prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, the left option was kind of monopolized by the Soviet Union, something that he viewed as obviously destructive and bad and not even worthy of attention or thought. So better just not to mention politics at all and not have to get caught up in that bullshit, essentially. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, he saw um, kind of a greater potential for a new type of politics opening up. And I think the limitation is that his anti-communism And his kind of one-sided focus on the state has led him not to be able to see some of the themes that like Marxism traditionally directs our attention to, which is economics and the power of corporations and the power of the bosses over us. Winds up kind of jerry-riggering his system to include economic elements is kind of like a a semi-late-breaking development. In my view, it doesn't kind of fit into his scheme as well as he wants it to. And in his commentary, for instance, on the COVID um, pandemic, he never mentions the dangers of, for instance, the Trump administration's desire to just let us expose ourselves to this disease for the sake of the economy. 
to sacrifice our lives for the economy. I asked, I emailed and asked him about that. I said, could you include this in a future column? And he did not do so, or he didn't even respond to that point in the email. I think the commentary that you gave on the COVID phenomenon, while you made some good points, I think that is kind of following along with Agamben's biases, maybe in the way that a kind of typical American distrust of government dovetails with what Agamben is doing. For me, this is an area where I found Agamben less helpful I'm glad that you find it helpful. Certainly, I don't want to get into a big debate right now. You're just having me on as the Agamben commentator guy. But I think that this is an area where he shows the limitations of his thought because it's not just that he doesn't factor in the economic, it's that he doesn't seem to have any view of like a positive collective project that would be good or sincerely oriented towards the good. None whatsoever. Are you talking about specifically with respect to the current moment and its challenges? I think the fact that he doesn't see any potential for good out of people's willingness to take these exceptional and even like self-damaging measures to ultimately to protect other people mainly, including like the elderly and infirm that people's willingness to blow up their lives for this, that could be a good thing too. It could point to like maybe people have this energy and this altruism that's not being tapped that could be tapped for a more positive political project. But I don't think he thinks there is a positive political project at the end of the day. I think his vision is ultimately very anarchistic, which again dovetails with a, a more American libertarian position where as long as our individual freedoms are secured and the government is kept kind of in its place, that's kind of all we can hope for. I do tend to agree with Agamben on that and that that energy, and I do recognize the potential at least good side of having a group of people who are willing to come together and to sacrifice, but I'm quite certain that that energy is ultimately being used against them, and we've already seen that in the form of arbitrary rules that provide no benefit whatsoever, even in theory, like blocking off parts of a store for seeds, you know, because, you know, whatever, right? Because you have the power to do it. And a number of others won't go too far into detail or too far into that. I think just one more piece of what you said that I want to pick up on, because I find it kind of puzzling, and I don't know to what extent it it has to do with the Gombin's writings, but maybe it does. The, you spoke about people sacrificing themselves for the economy, and that puzzles me for a couple reasons. One is that in a practical sense, I don't think there's evidence that other than in the case of healthcare facilities being absolutely overwhelmed and therefore having to you know leave people outside to die, that um, any of the measures taken have had any significant effect other than people's own in sort of internal, we're just going to scale back our mass gatherings. Um, but also because people are the economy. Like human beings are their actions and trade is not some to me anyway, not something that exists as a vague abstraction. Trade is what puts people's food on the table. It's them engaging in productive activities that they often love, sometimes not, but often love and that give them purpose and fulfillment and, of course, create the stuff that we need to eat. So that distinction that I see being made between the, you know, are we sacrificing for the economy 
that economy is just us, right? Well, this is where the lack of the Marxist perspective of the critique of capitalism comes in, because yes, our lives and livelihood are dependent on the economy, but the economy is not us. The economy is like Jeff Bezos. He's the one who's most benefiting from this to an absurd, like obscene degree. Specific from the lockdown, certainly, because everybody has to order everything from Amazon. Right. And frontline workers have disproportionately suffered from the disease, and that tends to be poorer and more minority people who are being asked, in some cases, to put themselves at risk more for our convenience or for our entertainment than for anything that's really necessary or life-affirming. And certainly, the motivations of Donald Trump personally were not so that we could all like enjoy ourselves, you know, it was to get the stock market up because he believes that would contribute to his re-election. That's what he means by the economy, like getting economic growth and GDP back up so that he can make a case for his economic management. I've been frustrated with some of the, the rules too, and I have questions about their their efficacy. But I think in a way, we're caught between a rock and a hard place. And I see, this is just my own personal opinion, I see more promise in the state, which at least has this element of democratic accountability, than in the corporate sector, where that is completely absent. Before we wrap up here, tell our listeners a little bit more about your uh, book and where they can pick it up, your new one. My book is called Agamben's Philosophical Trajectory, and it's a study that goes from his very earliest published writings up till the last thing he published uh, last year. He's an extremely prolific guy, but thank goodness he's only had like one or two small things uh, since I completed the text. There's a lot of books on Agamben that try to demonstrate that he's extremely consistent in his thinking, and that somehow like what he wrote in 1973 like dovetails perfectly with what he wrote last year. And I think that that is unrealistic and even undesirable. Like, we don't want our thinkers to just be repeating themselves for decades and decades. And so I take a perspective that presupposes that he's changing and evolving over time and try to show what's happening and how his ideas kind of run into dead ends and he needs to retool and this kind of thing. And so it's a thorough overview of basically all of his writings, and it has this uh, relatively unique perspective of focusing on his development. And I hope that that'll help people to make more sense of different writings from different stages of his career. It's published by Edinburgh University Press. It just is available for shipping through the evil Amazon.com. I just checked today, but you, you can and should order it directly from the, the press if you want to be virtuous. And if you go to my personal website, adamkotzko.com, it has the links to the, the Edinburgh University Press site for that book. Excellent, excellent. Adam, thanks so much for coming on The Filter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.